the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Senate passes legislation to codify same-sex marriage, which may jeopardize religious liberty. My colleagues have yet to offer even a single example of a same-sex marriage threatened by any current we're pending state legislation, not one. The Supreme Court hears oral arguments in a consequential immigration case. The impact is huge in that it's a real political loss for Joe Biden. Elon Musk says that the battle for Twitter is a battle for the future of civilization. Elon Musk is now kind of really just sharing information with the public that a lot of people kind of already felt. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Wednesday, November 30th. I'm Mike Scott. On Tuesday, the Senate passed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which is said to protect Americans' access to same-sex marriage. Lawmakers on the Hill voted 61 to 36. A dozen Republicans joined Democrats to vote in favor of that legislation. The bipartisan panel includes Republicans Rob Portman of Ohio, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Susan Collins of Maine. Democrat senators include Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, both of whom identify as LGBT. NBC reporter Ken Endall says that the bill has specific language that some experts believe will protect it from lawsuits. Though Congress appears to be hours away from codifying same-sex and interracial marriage into federal law, it doesn't mean legal challenges go away. There certainly will be a slew of lawsuits, and as soon as this law is signed, you will see those lawsuits. The Supreme Court will have an opportunity to take any one of those lawsuits or multiple if it would like to. But it doesn't mean they're likely to, and Supreme Court scholars like University of Minnesota political science professor Tim Johnson says the Respect for Marriage Act is designed to stand up to those challenges by relying on the Constitution's full faith in credit clause. And this provision using full faith and credit really will make it difficult for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide that this law is unconstitutional. Why? Because full faith and credit is an actual provision in the Constitution that states are mandated to follow to protect the rights of everybody from other states. Endall went on to explain that a crucial amendment was added to maintain support of a few Republican members. And he says a new amendment making clear that nonprofit religious organizations are not required to help perform a same-sex marriage offers one final flourish because it keeps with legal precedent and keeps this bipartisan effort together. However, many Republicans voice major concerns over the bill's language and how it could still be used to threaten religious liberty. Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah during his arguments on the Senate floor said that he's concerned that the bill will prioritize the rights of LGBT couples over religious Americans. 
we should look to the Constitution and remember that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We do a disservice to all Americans if we elevate the rights of one group at the expense of another. On the one hand, there's no existing threat to same-sex marriage. It is and will remain legal nationwide, regardless of the outcome of this legislation before us, the Respect for Marriage Act. On the other hand, we have current, real, sustained, ongoing assaults on religious freedom. How we proceed today will do nothing to the status quo of same-sex marriage in this country. It's legal and will remain legal regardless of the outcome of this legislation. It will, however, if enacted, have profound consequences for people of faith. Lee says there were no lawsuits currently challenging same-sex marriage. My colleagues have yet to offer even a single example of a same-sex marriage threatened by any current or pending state legislation. Not one, not a single one. And they intentionally misinterpret Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs and claim that the sky is falling. But it's just not happening. Unfortunately, we are aware of case after case where individuals, charities, small businesses, religious schools, and religious institutions are being hauled into courts to defend themselves for living out their faith. These people are not committing hate crimes against their neighbors. No, they're, they're not abusing peers or their personal choices either. No, they're being hauled into courts across this country for serving the poor, the needy, and the refugee in compliance with their sincerely held religious beliefs. The Utah senator goes on to explain that he believes that religious organizations that receive federal funding will be targeted under the Respect for Marriage Act. Now, proponents of this bill claim that these charities will be free to continue to operate. However, in that case, the question is whether, because the Conference of Catholic Bishops receives federal funding to help with its work, it might be operating under color of law. If accepting grants and licenses from the government makes you an actor under color of law, then many of our religious charities and schools will be threatened by this legislation, which relies on that unnarrowed, undefined phrase. Lee goes on to say that the risks to religious liberty are increased under the Respect for Marriage Act. They don't go away because of this legislation. If anything, they're enhanced. The risk is enhanced as a result of this legislation. That's why this is the perfect opportunity. It is the right opportunity. It may well be the only opportunity to make sure that as we're undertaking a legislative effort to codify rights for one group of Americans, we don't do so in a particularly un-American way. That is, enhance the rights of some at the expense of others. That's not how we roll. That's not how we do things in this country. We can protect both of these interests at the same time, just as we can walk and chew gum. The Alliance Defending Freedom also was highly critical of the bill's passage in the Senate by saying that the law intentionally jeopardizes the religious freedom of millions of Americans, 
releasing a statement that reads in part, quote, This dangerously cynical and completely unnecessary bill is a direct attack on the First Amendment. It does nothing to change the legal status of same-sex marriage anywhere. But it undermines religious freedom everywhere and exposes Americans throughout the country to predatory lawsuits by activists seeking to use the threat of litigation to silence debate and exclude people of faith from the public square, end quote. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments Tuesday over the Biden administration's policy that would prioritize deportation of dangerous illegal immigrants. What prompted the hearing was a case from a September 2021 rule from the Department of Homeland Security that placed a pause on deportations unless the illegal immigrant had committed acts of terrorism, espionage, or egregious threats to public safety. News Nation's Allie Bradley explains the case that is being heard by the court. The Supreme Court hearing oral arguments today when it comes to an immigration policy. What's being looked at is whether or not President Biden has the authority to basically create new rules when it comes to enforcing immigration proceedings, removal proceedings only on specific groups of people. States are arguing that with the resources tied up to single out and to prioritize certain groups, other migrants will be slipping through the cracks unvetted. States are also arguing that costs will rise with this influx of migrants. However, immigration advocates are saying that those costs would rise anyways as those states are trying to bring more people into their states to grow their populations. But right now, what we're really getting to the heart of is if the Biden administration has the authority to make policy without going through Congress, if these these issues at hand violate federal immigration law and whether or not states actually have standing to challenge the federal government. The Biden administration's Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologer says there is simply no way for the federal government to remove every illegal immigrant. Given congressional funding choices, it would be impossible for DHS to do so. Adopting respondents' reading would not lead to more immigration enforcement. Instead, it would just deprive the secretary of his statutory authority to set priorities to protect the nation's security and borders. Chief Justice John Roberts tells the Solicitor General his interpretation of federal law requiring the removal of all illegal immigrants. We think, I think anyway, shall means shall. What do we do in that situation? If this court were to actually adopt that interpretation of the statute, uh, then I think that it would be incredibly destabilizing on the ground. I I didn't ask you what it would be. I want you to know what we should do. Should we still fulfill our responsibility to say what the law is, and then it's up to Congress and the executive to figure out a way to comply with that? Prelogar says federal law does not actually, in her opinion, require the removal of every illegal immigrant. The INA does not create an unyielding mandate to apprehend and remove every non-citizen described in provisions that use the term shall. The chief justice tells Preloger the ability of federal agents to actually remove every illegal immigrant is not the high court's concern. Now, it's our job to say what the law is, not whether or not it can be possibly implemented or whether there are difficulties there. 
Um, and I don't think we should change that responsibility just because Congress and the executive can't agree on something that's possible to address this, this problem. I don't think we should let them off the hook. Julia Manchester is a reporter for the Hill newspaper and says should the court rule against the Biden administration, it would be a huge loss for the White House. The impact is huge in that it's a real political loss for Joe Biden. Look, you know, looking at this from the perspective of a national political reporter, we see that Republicans, particularly in these Republican-led border states like Texas, have really been trying to draw attention to the situation at the southern border, you know, saying that there are, you know, hordes of migrants or, you know, large numbers of people crossing over the border and that their local law enforcement there can't handle all of these people and saying that uh, the Biden administration's policy on this, essentially uh, prioritizing deporting and apprehending uh, migrants who pose a threat to national security, security doesn't necessarily go far enough. And we know that the Biden administration has held much more of a liberal view on this, but it would be a big loss for the Biden administration. Now, We'll have to see how this goes, because we know that this is a conservative-leaning Supreme Court, and we know that conservative states, conservative governors are bringing this to the Supreme Court. But we know that the Supreme Court has, you know, gone against that mold in the past. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But a big moment for the Biden administration on what is really a, a very fraught issue it's facing right now. Manchester explains how Democrats are struggling with the crisis at the southern border. I think a lot of Americans, a lot of lawmakers are all re- are obviously, you know, wanting to know those the answer to that question. It was interesting last week, Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, a senator who very a Democratic senator who very narrowly won his reelection bid, said, "Look, his party uh, doesn't necessarily understand the situation at the border, and they need to work on their messaging when it comes to that." And a lot of that messaging comes directly from the White House. A lot of Democrats are looking to see how the Biden administration moves on this. So it might uh, you know, p- be best for the Biden administration to provide more of those insights as to what its policy is. However, I think it will be very telling if we continue to get very vague answers on this issue. On Monday, the White House's press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, said that the Biden administration would be keeping an eye on Twitter after a reporter asked what was being done about misinformation on the social media platform. So look, this is something that we're certainly uh, keeping an eye on. And uh, look, um, we, you know, we have always been very clear um, and that uh, when it comes to social media platforms, it is their responsibility uh, to make sure that um, when it comes to misinformation, when we when it comes to the hate that we're seeing, uh, that they, they take action, that they continue uh, to take action. Again, we're all keeping a close eye on this. We're all uh, uh, monitoring uh, what's, what's currently uh, occurring. And uh, we see, you know, we see it with our own eyes of, of what you all are reporting and just for, for ourselves what's happening on, on Twitter. Uh, but again, social media companies have a responsibility to prevent their platforms uh, from being used by any user uh, to incite violence, especially violence uh, directed at individual communities, as we have been seeing. And the president has been very clear on calling uh, that out. He'll continue to do that. Uh, and we're going to continue to monitor the situation. Go ahead. Democrat Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts recently raised eyebrows on free speech concerns himself. 
by threatening Elon Musk will pay for refusing to respond to his concerns over some Twitter policies. Meanwhile, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy took issue with Democrats and the White House, saying they would keep an eye on Elon Musk and stated that Republicans will no longer let the government go after people simply because of their political views. This comes on the heels of reports that Twitter published details on how the site had operated before Elon Musk took over the company. The report seemed to show that over 11 million accounts were challenged for violating strict COVID-19 information policies, while 11,230 accounts were suspended. Adam Rosari is co-founder of AgencyPartner.com. He's also a co-host of the My Michelle Live podcast and a major advisor at FreedomWorks and Heritage Action. He joins the Daybreak Insider podcast to discuss the turmoil over Twitter and why Americans should care about it. In a nutshell, Twitter is going through a massive, massive transformation, one that is so massive, it would have been impossible for it to kind of go through this process as a public company. You know, when Elon Musk decided to buy Twitter and take it private, he did so knowing that the organization needed fundamental changes. And sometimes when an organization like this goes through these sort of changes, there's a lot of pain to begin with. And and I'm not talking about like growing pains. I'm talking about like actual pain here that, you know, a a public company can't really allow because there is oftentimes pain that's transferred over to the shareholders. And when you have a board of directors making decisions and you have the company really kind of acting in the fiduciary, basically best interest of those people who own stock in the company, they, they can't do certain things that in fact they need to do to kind of, you know, really unlock additional layers of value. So, you know, Elon Musk has taken this company private and obviously he's kind of cut like half of the, of the employee base, which frankly was a necessary thing to do because the company was losing $4 million a day just in operation. And, you know, for a business that historically has been unprofitable for eight out of the last 10 years, Frankly, it should be no surprise that the organization is undergoing this much of a change. Rosari says that it's a good thing that Elon Musk is sharing transparency with the public about how the social media platform was run prior to his acquisition of the company. He's cut a lot of the employees and he's really just ensured that the people around him are those who are bought into his vision of what Twitter should be. And Twitter, just, you know, in terms of the societal good that it creates, it's supposed to facilitate free speech, right? It's supposed to be a social media platform that allows us to, you know, have conversations that matter. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, you know, from one social platform to the next that, in fact, there's a heavy amount of bias that takes place when it comes to content moderation. And, you know, when that takes place, you know, the marketplace of free ideas doesn't, doesn't really get to exist. So, you know, Elon Musk is now kind of really just, sharing information with the public that a lot of people kind of already felt. He's sharing internal documentation from from Twitter HQ, things that really validate a lot of what I think people have been very concerned about for years. And so, you know, it's nice to see Elon adding this, this huge layer of transparency to what Twitter has been, but then also sharing with the public what Twitter should be moving forward. Rosari says that, in his opinion, companies who are pulling their ads are simply doing so out of spite. It's really to spite Elon Musk. It's exposing that a lot of the larger companies in our market, they, they really all kind of hire the same small group of big advertising agencies to run 
uh, their marketing campaign. And frankly, they're, they're kind of falling victim to really bad advice. They're, they're literally pulling their advertising from a platform that's gaining in value, uh, one that is acquiring new users, one that is verifying that all the users, in fact, are not bots, and, and also, too, one that is getting more and more engagement from the users that are on. So, you know, you have these, these marketing agencies that are advising this, this collection of, of advertisers, and, and they're really doing so without, frankly, the, the business interests of those companies. And so as a result, you will see that a lot of these companies are going to very quickly return to the platform. And in fact, if you think about CBS as a company, you know, CBS was, was concerned that with the instability over there at Twitter, that there would be a rise of, of hate speech and just kind of bad content in general going through the platform. Although I, I will say that Elon Musk shared internal documentation showing that, uh, in fact, they were very successfully mitigating the amount of, of bad content kind of going through the platform. And go figure, after a weekend or so of CBS kind of putting the pause on, on their activity in terms of their, their, their Twitter account, you know, if they, they paused it on a Friday and they were back on a Monday. The FreedomWorks advisor goes on to explain why the brewing battle between Apple and Twitter matters. Apple is really a gatekeeper to the world of, of mobile devices, just like Google. You know, you have... Obviously, you have the Play Store for Google and the App Store for, for iOS devices. And when you have this, these extremely powerful gatekeepers saying your application will be denied you know, on the App Store, you're literally saying we're going to pull your app from every user that, that uses your platform. Uh, it shows you just how powerful Apple is as a business. Um, and, and frankly, too, for Android devices, how, how powerful Google is, right? Those are really the two gatekeepers to the world of, of all mobile devices. And so if Apple is sitting here saying that we're going to pull you from the App Store for, for really no good reason, um, it, it really is a very anti-competitive practice. And it's one that I think we have to reconcile because, you know, you, you cannot have just a small handful of companies that are not elected, right, to, to try and decide what should be free speech and what shouldn't be free speech. Rosary believes that should Apple remove Twitter from its App Store, Many people would happily buy a phone or an app that was created by Elon Musk. The market, I think, really has to be ready for uh, kind of a fight. I think probably at the, at the, at the level of the, the Senate Judiciary Committee or, or somewhere in Congress, uh, a fight that will ideally kind of open up some, uh, I, I guess, open up some opportunities for competing concepts to come to the market. But we're talking about David and Goliath here, right? Like, how do you, as an innovator or as a startup leader, create a concept that's going to fight against Apple and Google. Um, you really can't, right? It's really, it's really just not a thing. So, you know, if Apple were to actually deny access to, to Twitter, uh, expect to see Elon Musk come out with his own sort of app store and his own sort of mobile device. And, and believe it or not, a lot of people would switch to an Elon Musk device over a Tim Cook device tomorrow. When it comes to what the average American can do to support freedom of speech, Rosary says simply, let your voice be heard on these platforms. People should, I mean, be active on Twitter, right? Uh, use your voice, like let your voice be heard and uh, interact with others. I mean, also respect the fact that free speech comes with uh, the caveat that you might hear things that you don't like. Uh, I think to sit back and, and, and point fingers and say people are purveyors of misinformation or disinformation and that they should be shut down is very, very unfortunate. People have to understand that the constitution allows you know, ideas to flourish that you might disagree with. So, you know, as a user, just understand that you might dislike what you hear, but you know what, if it's not inciting violence and it's not against the law, 
you can also you can make the decision to mute a user that you don't like, right? And and so I think from from the perspective of Twitter and, and just being a social media user, there are things that you can do as a as an individual user to block certain types of content that you don't like. The Daybreak Insider Podcast. Thanks, Adam Rizuri, for joining us. For more information on Adam, follow him on Twitter at the Adam Riz, or tune into his podcast, My Michelle Live at MyMichelleLive.com. The United States rolls on in the World Cup with a 1-0 win over Iran, moving into the round of 16. In the 38th minute, U.S. striker Christian Pulisic scored to put the U.S. ahead. Iran proved they were no pushover. They scrapped their way throughout the remainder of the game. However, Iran in the second half was never able to capitalize on opportunities, and Pulisic's goal stands up good enough for an American win. U.S. players are gassed. Iranians are up. It comes into the box again. An Iranian player looking for a penalty, and the game is over. Fans of the sport weren't the only ones cheering the U.S. win. Iranian women's rights activists tell CNN that people celebrated the American goal that ultimately won the game. You won't believe me. In the city of Saqqaz, the hometown of Mahsa Amini, 20-year-old Kurdish girl who got killed by hijab police, which you know that her brutal death sparking a revolution in Iran against gender apartheid regime, from that city... People were celebrating when the moment that the U.S. football team suckered a goal against the Islamic Republic uh, national football team. And you know why? Because at the same time that people are getting killed in the street, teenagers are getting killed. This activist says the Iranian people are happy about the Americans winning the game and moving on. Now we don't see that this uh, football team uh, representing us, half of the population, Iranian women, are not even allowed to go to a stadium. So that is why I'm calling on the rest of the world to be the voice of Iranian people and see that how Iranian people are celebrating the U.S. victory. The U.S. now moves on to play the Netherlands on Saturday. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at daybreakinsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at srnnews.com and townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The 
explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.